What trends are taking place in bioethics that we need to think biblically about? Whether it's the FDA making abortion pills easier to access, Quebec euthanasia deaths being the highest in the world, or a Catholic hospital being forced to perform gender-affirming surgery, there are some issues that we need to think biblically about. I'm your host, Sean McDowell. I'm your co-host, Scott Ray. This is Think Biblically, brought to you by Talbot School of Theology at Biola University. Scott, sometimes I look at these stories and I think, you can't make this up, can you? And we're going to get to some stories <laughs> that I literally can't believe this is happening. But let's start with one that I can believe, and we both saw it coming, but we've got to address it, that the FDA is now making abortion pills easier to access. What's going on? Well, we had actually we had we interviewed Dr. Donna Harrison not long ago on on this podcast, and she told us this was coming, uh, mm. but it came just not not that long ago in early in January of 2023, where the Food and Drug Administration approved pharmacies to carry abortion-inducing drugs. Are you 486? Is their is their street name uh, ac- accessible over the counter and without without a prescription? And without any necessary medical pre-exam or follow-up necessary. Wow. So the do-it-yourself, over-the-counter abortion is now about to be the law of the land by decree of the Food and Drug Administration. Now, our concern is Donna walked through, again, she's an OBGYN, is that there are serious medical fallouts for many women who take this excessive bleeding. And so really what this does is it moves it out of the hand of a medical doctor into somebody to just do at home. That's one concern. Are there other concerns we have with this being accessible? Well, yes, because the, uh, the, 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 uh, the drugs are, are prescribed specifically for certain stages of pregnancy. So there's a different there's a different mix of the cocktail for early in pregnancy as opposed to say early early in the second trimester, and so where a woman is in in her pregnancy will determine what exactly the mix is that she needs to take, and that needs to be under a physician's care, because most most women don't know how far along they are until they've consulted with a physician. Just a pregnancy test alone is not going to tell them that. And most, you know, not most, probably 40% statistically of all uses of RU486 result in some sort of medical, if not surgical, follow-up to finish the job that the drug started. And so in in many cases, women will will, only see their family doctor, for example, who may or may not be trained to do any of this. Uh, and so they may not be able to get to get to a specialist in time. They may not get to get to the right setting in time. And so it, it, you sh- women should not expect that they should go through, be able to do this without complications ensuing. And so they need to at least be prepared what will take place if they have complications that they can't manage themselves at home. Now, someone like me, and I'm sure many of our listeners want to think that the FDA distinctly has our best interest at heart. And this is motivated by medical need. I'm really suspicious when this happened, namely in 2022, we saw the fall of Roe versus Wade, that there's going to be, I'm sure, some wonderful people that work there. I'm not disparaging all of the FDA. Don't hear me saying that. 
but that there's some serious politics behind this where the genuine uh, health of women and second, of course, the baby, it's obvious, that's obvious, need not be stated, but it has to be stated today, is driving this thing. Do you see it the same? I think that's true. Um, I think this is this was largely done in as as a reaction to the Dobbs decision that overturned Roe v. Wade because this this actually the F, the action by the FDA will allow access to RE forty six in states that have elected to to put pretty serious limitations on access to surgical abortion. Mm. So it, I think the design it seems to me I, this is my own hopefully reasonably sanctified speculation. <laughs> sure. My, my, my sense is that this was done in order to safeguard access to, to abortion, even in states that are, mm. are about half the states have already passed measures to restrict it. Now, this so seems it seems to- like it's, it may be undermining the, what the Supreme Court intended to do in their reversal of Roe v. Wade. That makes sense. Now, this is going to completely change the abortion landscape in the sense that on so many fronts, number one, now a woman is not going to have to go publicly to a place like Planned Parenthood. So it removes that barrier from having an abortion. Well, and it also removes the barrier of having to face protesters outside the it, Planned Parenthood Which is doors. A, a big piece of it. That's exactly right. You know, the other thing that that it does is it it just makes it so much easier now to get an abortion. I'm guessing the cost probably is going to go down for this. You don't have to shell out of your own pocket. Maybe some insurance companies are going to cover it. Maybe. That remains to be oh, played out. I suspect out. every insurance company is going to cover this. They will cover it. So that makes it even easier. But even emotionally, one of the most powerful ways of convincing somebody pro-life is the ultrasound. But now we're dealing with the earliest moments when somebody is pregnant. They don't need to potentially wait to go see an ultrasound because it's going to be earlier and yeah. easily accessible. This is going to even shape the way we need to make the pro-life case, isn't it? Yeah, because it, it, it just further privatizes that abortion decision mm. and takes it, just takes it completely out of the public realm. Unless, of course, they need follow-up sure, you know, afterwards, sure. which— I think we, you, sh- you should assume that that's going to be the case. But making making this will further reinforce the notion that abortion is a is a woman's private decision over her mm. own body that she can do in the you know in the sanctity of her own home uh, without re- without recourse to physicians who might try to talk them out of it without recourse to an ultrasound. Yep. But I think touches. I think just. Hearing the baby's heartbeat and seeing that little blip on the screen in the ultrasound, that's very powerful hmm. for a woman. And it awakens maternal instincts uh, that are, are counterproductive for a woman who's attempting to end a pregnancy. So let me play a skeptic here before we move to the next, uh, the next story that's going on. Is I imagine somebody could say, look— this stuff is already accessible and available on the black market for somebody to order through the internet from another country anyways. At least we're trying to bring it in-house so it's through a pharmacy, it's through the FDA, it's with a doctor who prescribes it. Isn't that good? Now, part of me in the back of my mind as I'm asking this question, I hear people say they said the same thing about marijuana, and I don't think that has worked for reasons we won't go into. 
But what would you say to skeptic goes, look, we're just trying to make this easier and better and more professional and actually help women than getting it off the black market? Well, I think there is there there is I think something to that, um, but I, I don't think we should be under the illusion that the 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 safety of women's health is the primary concern. Okay, if that were true, then there there would be some sort of there'd be some sort of involvement with a physician before they are able to access the drug. Because the physician, I think physician is, is necessary in determining how long, how far along the pregnancy is. Okay. Therefore, what mix of drugs is best suited for where they are in the pregnancy. Okay. Plus, they've got somebody avail, readily available for follow-up if necessary. It seems to me if we were really interested in protecting women's health, we would do at least those three things. I remember, as mm. Dr. Harrison pointed out to us, that these kinds of loose standards for any other aspect of obstetrics right. and gynecology would be considered malpractice. Hmm. Fair. Good response. All right. Let's move to the second story, which is about Quebec euthanasia deaths, the highest in the world. Now, according to a study you and I both saw, about 5.1% of all deaths in Quebec are somehow tied to a physician helping assist that death in some fashion. Either either euthanasia or assisted suicide. What is going on in this story, and why would it be so high in Canada? Well, the interesting thing is in the Netherlands, where this has been going on for at least 30 years, mm. ab above ground and below ground but long before that, it's slightly lower. It's only 4.8%. Mm. In Belgium, 2.3%. And in, in California... Interesting thing, in California, uh, in 2021, because it was legalized in Canada about the same time it was legalized in California, mm. less than 500 people died using the state's assisted suicide program. Oh, interesting. Which we could, a question to raise is, why is that number so low? Yeah. Canada, over 10,000 mm. people just in a year. Wow. You took advantage of med medically assisted aid in dying. Uh, that's that's the general term for sure. it. Now, I think what, what's going on there, I think in, in other parts of the world, particularly in other parts of the United States, the hospice movement is is much stronger than it is in, in other oh, parts of the world. And I think the, the reason that makes mm. a difference is because the criteria for being a candidate for euthanasia or, or some sort of medical aid in dying in Canada includes the category of unrelievable suffering, pain and suffering. The hospice movement specializes in treating pain and suffering at the end of a patient's life. In fact, they are now treating more, more for mental health kinds of things wow. at, the, at the end of life, in addition to physical pain. What we discovered is through lots and lots of research that when patients' pain and suffering is under control, at least moderately under control, surprise, surprise, they want to live mm. and, and don't feel like they're candidates for that, which, the, which around the world now, the primary rationale for getting medical assistance in dying is based on autonomy, not pain and suffering. Mm, okay. Because the average hospice physician can come, can come on and debunk that in just a few minutes. Okay, so 
the claim that's made is that there's unalleviated suffering, and this is the only way to alleviate it by giving somebody control of their own death. What you're saying is in the hospice movement, which is what separates, say, California from Quebec, helps alleviate that suffering, and most people then don't mm. want to die. That's but, that's correct. So it really, okay. it's mis I think it's misleading to say that unrelievable pain and suffering is the primary motivating factor for people who want to, who okay. want to enlist this. It's actually autonomy. It's control over my own life because, you know, I believe that the timing and manner of my death is a personal private decision that the state shouldn't have any right to enter into. So I guess two-part question. If you said the Netherlands, I think you said it was 4.8%, Quebec 51 uh, do we have reason to think that this is going to kind of plateau? I mean, it's not going to go up, obviously, to 100 percent. Yeah. Actually, I think the, the number is actually likely to increase. Okay. And the reason is because in the Western world in general, we have, you know, the, the baby boomers have become the geezer boomers. <laughs> and there are we we have the largest percentage of people in those countries over the age of sixty five that we have oh, ever gotcha. had before with a shrinking gotcha. working population paying taxes to support them. Mm. Uh, and so increasingly, this is going to become an economic decision. Whereas a a colleague of mine, not a Talbot colleague, but a bioethics colleague of mine, said several years ago, she said, "You know, it sounds callous, but there's nothing cheaper than dead." Wow. And we've already had cases in the United States and in Canada both where insurance companies are denying expensive end-of-life treatment but are uh, authorizing paying for assisted suicide or euthanasia. Okay. So there's, there's going to be an economic incentive to gotcha. this because we, sim we simply don't have the financial resources to give everybody all the medical treatment they want and need all the time. So does that mean then California should not be as concerned about this push towards euthanasia because of hospice, but we should be concerned economically that people will be living longer and taking more resources? And I, I hate to frame it that way, but I just did within the way the dialogue yeah. is. Well, that, that is the way the dialogue um, goes. And I mean, just so our listeners know, you know, roughly half of what you will spend on medical care in your entire life is spent in the last 12 months of your life. 12 months, more than half. More than roughly half. So wow. arguably when that will do you the least amount of good. Uh, and so there's a huge financial incentive mm. to promote assisted suicide and euthanasia and to promote the stopping, premature stopping of treatments. Uh, and that, that, that's, just, that's just a financial reality. And... In Europe, at least, they are starting to be clear about what's motivating it. And they're, they're actually saying out, up front that it is a financial decision. Oh, they're owning it. They're, wow. uh, they're owning it. Interesting. Um, now, it, it's not great public relations. Yeah. But, I mean, God bless them for owning that decision. That'd probably be a lot harder to own in California in the U.S., although maybe not. <laughs> I would suspect it would be. I guess we'll find out. We will find as out. As it moves that direction. That's something that's looming. Well, let's move to our third story. Uh, it's, there's something called the Right to Build Families Act, which is aimed to protect the IVF industry 
in the United States. Now, why is there so I guess in part, let's start with what's going on to protect the IVF industry that hasn't happened before. What is this act? Well, the the IVF industry feels threatened by the Dobbs decision that reversed Roe v. Wade. Okay. Because they understand that the pro-life movement considers embryos people too. Mhm. And just you know, I, I and I, in my view, cor- we correctly view right. them that way, right? Because if personhood begins at conception and there's no break, you know, somehow between conception and birth, then there, there's you know, conception is the only logical place to put that that point of demarcation. So the, the IVF industry, I think, is is protecting their rear flank on this to ensure that if the pro-life movement comes after them, they have the safeguard of federal law. So this law, this bill was introduced in the Senate last year, and I believe if I have this right, shortly after the Dobbs decision was handed down. Makes sense. And it certainly will certainly be debated this year in the Senate. Hmm. So I think that's what's, that's what's motive, what's driving this. Um, and it's and it's, okay. it's being introduced under a a right to start a family. Okay, so which is sort of all, it's, that's like that's almost as all American as motherhood and apple pie. Um, you know, the right to start a family. I mean, who can argue with that? Sure, the way it's framed, everybody's it's framed. on board. That's right. Make make the connection exactly for me why IVF would be it, it feel like it's in jeopardy for its business model. Okay. In light of Dobbs, what what's the connection? Well, because if embryos are persons as well, right? Although Dobbs did not Dobbs did not say that personhood begins at conception, but the the pro life movement has been very clear about that that yeah. personhood begins there for for the most part. Okay, um, and so the normal practice of in vitro fertilization creates. You know, Multiple. Sometimes, um, yeah, that's an understatement yeah. in yeah. some cases, Fair. and there are. At last count, there are close to a million embryos in storage in infertility clinics in the United States and Canada. Frozen embryos. Frozen, yeah. Yeah. And we would say that those are, you know, the the children of the couples who conceive them that are are being frozen, held in storage, and will likely be eventually discarded. now, some in some cases they're used, they're donated to other infertile sure, couples. They're sure. used for research, but most of them are going to basically go down the kitchen sink okay. at some point. So the normal standard of practice in IVF is, I think, is a serious problem for a, a follower of Jesus who who is who is as, as pro life as we are. Mm. Because the normal practice creates all these excess embryos that if you hit the jackpot and get pregnant with twins or triplets on your first try, got it. your childbearing days are probably over yep. and maybe medically over as a result of that. Okay. So you've got, now you've got a big problem of what do I do with, all, with my children that are in cold storage here? And so I, and I, I think there's a problem. I mean, I wouldn't. You know, I don't. I can't think of any reasons why I would freeze a two-year-old child. Hmm. You know, why, even for their own benefit, I'm not sure I would do that. But so, freezing embryos, I think, is is on the same moral plane as you know, freezing small children. For, okay. You know, so, that's I think the the issue. That's what's problematic about it. Another problem is 
in, in some cases, uh, women, especially older women, are implanted with more embryos than they can safely carry. Mm. And the option then the, then they have the option of selective termination wow. ahead of them, which even if I were pro-choice, I would say that's a problem. Selective termination, what a term to use to, <laughs> to indicate or under-indicate what's actually exactly going on. Under-indicate. That, that so. makes sense. Now, it is interesting to me that this bill you said you think came out shortly after Dobbs, which means they were anticipating it and planning it. Ready to go. I, I think that's my best understanding. Fair, fair uh, enough. That uh, makes sense. If they're, you know, the American Society for Reproductive Medicine uh, has a vested interest in keeping the infertility industry alive and well uh, and protected from threats like this. Mm. Um, fair, fair enough. Let's shift to number four, which surprises me, probably most of all of these, that a Catholic hospital could be forced to perform gender-affirming surgery. Now, before we talk about what's going on, let's just answer this question. Why would a hospital care, a, a Catholic hospital in particular, and potentially a Baptist and other hospitals would as well, isn't it just surgery, Scott, to help somebody out? In the, in the view of the, the Catholic health system, the answer to that clearly is no, because— in, in their view, gender-affirming gender surgery, as it's called, mm -hmm. uh, transgender transitioning, however you want to right, call it, right. uh, is viewed as something much more fundamental than that, that it violates the created order of things where mm. God created God created human beings male, distinctly male and female. And so for, in the Catholic health system, biological sex matters. It's a trump card. That's not to say you don't treat gender dysphoria, but you do it in other ways besides radical surgery that involves tran gender transition, which we're finding as this goes on, the number of detransitioners is also increasing uh, and with lots of really interesting stories to tell about that. Yeah. This is one of the, one of the, one of the very few areas— where a physician and a medical center's right to, to their own conscience, to set their own standards of what's morally appropriate practice, is being undercut. Mm. Uh, because Catholic, Catholic hospitals do, are not forced to perform abortions, they're not forced to perform assisted suicide, but they are being forced to perform gender-affirming surgeries. Okay, so a Catholic hospital, if somebody had, say, cancer and a hysterectomy is the way of alleviating the cancer, that would be permissible in principle because of the higher goal right. of saving the life. But for shifting somebody from one right. sex to the next, that's out of line with God's created order. And the concern is that notice that Catholic hospitals could be forced to do this. The issue's not settled yet. That's correct. They, yeah, the, uh, the fe federal court has found already that they violated federal law. On mm. So what the consequence is going to be, we still don't know. Got it. Now, this, this is a little tricky legally because the the St. The Saint Joseph Catholic Hospital is, is under the umbrella of the University of Maryland Health Center, oh, which is a state, state university system. And so— uh, essentially, what the Catholic hospital is arguing that just simply by virtue of being under a state system, we don't sacrifice our rights of conscience. Mm. 
Got it. We can still practice medicine the way we see fit. In my view, whether it's affiliated with a state hospital or not is beside the point. Right. Because they're they're being forced to do something uh, or will likely be forced to do something that's against their convictions. And I, I what I wonder is what, what, the, what the Catholic Health Association has said repeatedly is if they were forced to perform abortions or do assisted suicide, they would close their doors. Wow. In mass. Wow. Which constitutes roughly a third of all the healthcare facilities in the United States. A third of them. That would, that would be catastrophic for healthcare in America, particularly for the underserved communities that Catholic healthcare does so wonderfully at serving. Now, I sus- uh, my suspicion is a couple things are going on. Number one, that is a power move, which in my estimation is a legitimate power move. But second, I think they mean it. We saw this with adoption agencies being forced to adopt They're out. Absolutely right. If I'm not mistaken, in Massachusetts, it was in the Northeast, and they said, we will close our doors. And the larger culture celebrated this, which to me shows how upside down our culture is and where these dividing lines are. But I think they mean it. So if I understand correctly, we're seeing played out right in front of us. How far will conscious rights go for individual doctors or Catholic hospitals? I suspect this is going to have to work its way up to the Supreme Court in some fashion. Would you agree? I, I suspect so. Because uh, this, this is a major shift wow. in how physicians practice medicine and, and, and either are or are not protected under the law. Because you know, we, we've acknowledged for centuries that physicians have are moral agents and they have consciences too, just like patients. You know, and it's just because a patient wants something doesn't necessarily obligate a physician to provide that. That's right. So now, whether it obligates a physician to refer to some other ones who will provide, I think, is really the, is the much harder mm. question because lots of physicians view referring and doing the procedures as virtually the same thing. Now, asking this question is probably three, four, five, ten steps down the road. But if a case like this made its way up to the Supreme Court, I'm relatively confident that the right of the doctors and the Catholics, their religious freedom would be preserved. Now, I don't know the nuances in this state, and there's some legal issues beyond me, but I, if I had to bet, and I'm not a betting man, <laughs> I'm confident it's going to work out, but we don't know that, and it's being played out in front of us. Yeah, I think it's just, it's a it's a coin flip wow. as to how this is going to come out. And it's, it's also a coin flip as to whether, whether the Catholic health system will consider this a, the same kind of deal breaker that they consider abortion and assisted suicide. I suspect that it will be, mm. but I, that's still, I think, to be determined. This is one of the first signs I've seen of like, wow, there could be not only— uh, I've known that the agenda is f- wanting to force hospitals, but the first legal precedent of trying to do so is a game-changing time. I yeah. think it will remember wherever this goes. Yeah, I think the other thing it will do, I think, is make religiously— Affiliated hospitals much more reluctant to partner with oh that's with, wise. with state health facilities that makes sense which I think is a huge that's a huge loss mm. for healthcare just in general and you also wonder would it be restricted to states could some states have that right and not others I mean there's so many options we're speculating on but yeah. we'll be covering this to, and we'll, to be determined exactly well well said well let's move to our last story I got to admit Scott when you sent me this article I thought <laughs> you've got to be kidding me. There's no way that this is happening. But 
the idea is that there's new horizons for surrogacy, what's called whole body gestational donation, which when I read something like that, I immediately think that is a fancy way of hiding something very disturbing that's going on. What's happening? It's corpses as surrogates. Wow. Corpses that are that having that are having their vital functions sustained by, you know, heart heart pumps and ventilators and all Food that being intravenously injected in some right. fashion. Right, being uh, surrogates uh, because the, the rationale for this is for one, it's quite a bit cheaper. Yep. Uh, for another, uh, the advocates of this this came this first came out of Scandinavia uh, in the last few years, but. Uh, they, they, you know, why should these wombs go to waste was the oh rationale. Goodness. Uh, and the third is that, you know, gestation and pregnancy uh, involve risks for women. Childbirth is not an easy thing. I mean, it's I mean, most women come through it safely. But, uh, you know, the parts of the world, that's not that's not as true as, as often. Uh, and so why not have pregnancy, have surrogacy being done by women for whom you for whom no harm can come to them? Mm. If complications ensue, uh, so I, I consulted on a case like this in 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 one of the Catholic hospital settings that I consulted with years ago, where we had a woman who had been in a really serious car accident, mm. made massive head injury, and was in a persistent vegetative state, and she was six months pregnant at the time and had an advanced directive to not have mechanical ventilation if she was in a vegetative state. She did not want to be sustained that way, but her husband insisted on keeping her oh, vital function, gosh. keeping her alive until the baby could be safely delivered. And so wow. we kept her alive for a, 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 about two months. And the baby was delivered a month or so early, but uh, that was about the limit that we could do at the time. But the baby was delivered healthy. Wow. And as soon as the baby was delivered, his wife's wishes were, um, were followed. And so you can imagine carrying home a baby from the hospital on the same day that you've authorized oh my the goodness. discontinuation of life support for your spouse. Holy cow. You think, I mean, what a mixture of emotions. Um, we, we never really considered, you know, implant, impregnating, or implant, implant, not impregnating, yeah, but implanting yeah, yeah. an embryo uh, in a, a woman who's in a persistent vegetative state, which is basically... Brain dead, but the brain stem's still working. Okay. Or brain, or, or brain dead where nothing's working still. And so all the functions of the brain stem are provided artificially. Uh, it's not an easy thing to do from scratch uh, for, for, you know, the full gestational period. It's still a little tricky to do that. But there's, there's no reason in principle why this can't be done. Uh, I have so many questions about this. Oh. I don't even know where to start. Part, oh my goodness! Like even I think about viability. If we were to do this with women, then could a child be inserted that is younger? Like viability right now is twenty-two weeks. If we were to use women as artificial wombs, <clears throat> is then it viable from conception? Because we have another way. Like these are all downstream. Yeah. Well, this. But, this. I think the way this is being envisioned is in conjunction with in vitro fertilization. Okay. So it'd be, it'd be embryos Got implanted from the, okay. sta from the start. That makes more sense than but just... It's not. it's not a huge leap to an artificial womb. Mm. And advocates, what's called ectogenesis, advocates of ectogenesis have been talking about this for the last 
15, 20 years as though it were oh, just on have. the horizon. Okay. And it's not, you know, it's turned out not, okay. not so much. Uh, this would be something that would be an, an alternative to that. A, a step towards that. Yeah. So I guess it raised questions. Does the woman have to have some will ahead of time she's agreed to or not? And, uh, like, yeah, absolutely. It would, be, it would be similar to donating your organs. Mm. You would just do, you would donate your, you would, donate is not quite right because you would, and renting is, that's not quite the right term either. Yeah, that is uh, interesting. You would make, ava- make your womb available to a couple who wanted to use that to gestate a child. You would certainly have to have, the, the, the deceased woman would have to have previously consented to that for that to be the case. You know, part of the concern with surrogacy for me as a whole is just that the child is developing in the womb of another woman who's not the mother. And there's a connection that takes place even that's during right. this stage. So and, th- this, and, th- and actually, that's true whether the surrogate is genetically connected to the child right. or not. Mm. Guys, so that raises so many questions about how this would affect the child. Who can afford to do this? People with more money. Like... Holy cow, that is a crazy story. Well, this, I, I suspect that this would actually be quite a bit less expensive than the way normal surrogacy is done because the bill for normal surrogacy can Tens run thousands, up, to, up, to right? six, up to six figures. Mm. Uh, so it is definitely not for the financially faint of heart. So th- this, I think, one of the benefits of this would be to, I think, fairly dramatically reduce the cost. Uh, although I, 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 can't, I can't imagine what the cost would be to sustain a woman on sustain a basically a corpse on life support in a, in a hospital you know, well, though, maybe, with that maybe care, or maybe right? not maybe not maybe maybe not um so i you know that's i yeah i don't i'm not quite sure how that would cash out right um so that that may be a little premature to so is this just that. being discussed? Is it being approved? Where are we at with this? I think we're in, we're in the discussion mode. Okay. But this is the first time that I've seen anybody float the idea with some seriousness. This okay. came out of uh, Oslo, Norway. Um, this is, you know, the idea originally surfaced about 20 years ago in Israel, of all places. Oh, wow. Uh, an Israeli physician, had, I think, had the first, I- the first idea. Uh, on this, oh my um, goodness! But I'd say this is something for our listeners. Just sort of stay tuned. Uh, this is something to keep your antenna up for. Well, we'll come back to it and we'll cover it as it unfolds. Scott, appreciate your work in this area. Staying tuned in, crazy, You've been, wild, and crazy. Oh Could, my goodness! Can't make it up. It, it literally is science fiction come off the stage yeah. into reality. Yeah, we did. We did have you know we did have a case sort of like this where somebody was 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 required to be an, an, an organ donor without their consent. Mm. This was a, years ago, it was, a, it was a young man, about about in his early 30s. He, he was, he was a, a backup player for the, the then San Diego Chargers. Oh. He was killed in an automobile accident, uh, brain dead. Uh, he was uh, um, separated from his wife at the time. Uh, and so his father was the one making decisions, and his wife, in the, literally in the middle of the night, when they're harvesting his organs, his, his estranged wife barges into the hospital and says, I want his sperm to, okay. con- to conceive a child, Jeez. P- probably to get access to his estate oh, that he had left. Wow. 
Wow. And so the father was, I mean, he didn't know what to do with this. And so he actually consented to it. He said, okay, mm. even though I'm pretty sure the son, you know, the, the deceased person would not have consented to this because the certainly, I mean, most of the joy of parenthood is actually in being a father going forward. Amen. Not just, not just clinically passing along your genes. So there is, you know, we, 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 we had to remind the organ donation people that this was a Catholic hospital that uh, had, they, they say had, um, had uh, unique views sure. about how children should be conceived. And this did not yeah. fit within within Catholic within yeah. Catholic teaching, uh, but it wouldn't you know it wouldn't be a big surprise to see a dead person stripped of rights wow. because we're al- already in Europe now. The consent for organ donation is a consent to opt out, not to opt in. You oh, are, you are, wow. consent is presumed. Wow, interesting. It's presumed unless you explicit. So that little dot on your driver's license means I'm out in lots of other countries, whereas here it means I'm in. It also makes sense in the larger shift towards identity being less my body and just how I feel. That's right. A certain denigration of the body in our culture. In many ways, it makes sense yeah. that we would have these issues given our abandonment of a larger biblical worldview. And to think biblically about the body, there's just as much hope in the scripture for your body as there is for your soul. Amen to that. Good word to end on. Scott, appreciate your work here. Very insightful. We'll come back and we will cover some of these stories again. This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. The Think Biblically podcast is brought to you by Talbot School Theology at Biola University offering programs in Southern California and online, including our master's in Christian apologetics, where I teach now offered fully online. We also have courses as a part of that on ethics. Visit biola.edu slash Talbot to learn more. If you enjoyed today's conversation, please consider giving us a rating on your podcast app. Each one helps and consider sharing it with a friend. Thanks so much for listening. Remember, think biblically about everything.